Scripture. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the Psalms, to the Psalter, and our Scripture reading and our sermon text will be Psalm 45. Let me just say as you turn there, thank you once again for the privilege of inviting uh, me and my family to be with you to worship God together. And, uh, of course, for the immense privilege of preaching the gospel to you. Psalm 45, we will read the entirety of the psalm, including the superscription at the beginning. Psalm 45 reads, To the chief of musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, a masculine, a song of love. My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, and therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you terrible things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, thereby the people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made you glad. King's daughters were among your honorable women. Upon your right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, and consider... And incline your ear. Forget also your own people and your father's house. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty, since he is your lord. Worship him. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought into the king, or to the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. In the place of your fathers shall be your children, whom you make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. Let's pause once more just to ask God's blessing upon the preaching. Father, it is certain that the preacher cannot do his task if you don't bless and anoint uh, the preaching of your word. And certainly, O Lord, your people will not have ears to hear what you have to say unless you open their ears and soften their hearts. And so we look to you now that you would do your work in our midst that you would open the scriptures to us and help us to find in their pages the majesty the beauty the glory of our lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen
$147 million. That was the equivalent of the bill which Lady Diana and Prince Charles' so-called fairy tale wedding incurred back in 1981. 750 million folks from all four corners of the earth tuned in to witness this majestic display of regal romance unravel uh, before their eyes. The main attraction, of course, was the princess. 10,000 pearls were embroidered into her ivory dress. A diamond-spangled tiara rested on her head and a gold-clasped sapphire rested on her finger. She was the centerpiece of the occasion, the crown jewel of her noble husband, the most beautiful woman, according to many, that ever married into the royal family. Charles uh, looked almost plain in comparison to his stunning bride. Sure, he had his fair share of expensive attire on too, but nobody would argue that all eyes were fixed upon Lady Diana. In fact, this is the case with all of our weddings, isn't it? You know, the groom might spruce himself up, polish his shoes, comb his hair, and wear a pristine suit. But at the end of the day, every eye on that aisle will be fixed upon the bride. Well, the 45th Psalm contains a wedding album of another royal union. Nobody knows who, the exact, who exactly the happy couple were. Some say Solomon and the Shulamite, others Hezekiah and Hepzibah, but the reality is we don't know because the text never tells us. We know who wrote the psalm because the inscription before verse 1 says that one of the sons of Korah, that is the temple choir of the old covenant, penned it for the choir master himself. We know what kind of psalm it is. The inscription calls it a love song, a romantic ballad designed to eulogize, to bless this newlywed couple. But best of all, friends, we know who the psalm is ultimately about. Because the holy matrimony, the marriage ceremony depicted here, is but a type and a shadow of the marital union between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The father gives her hand in marriage, the son takes her hand in marriage, and the spirit captures the moment for all generations to see. The photographer is the pen of a ready writer who catalogues the pomp of the occasion, the the bride's fine array and the charm of her attendance. And yet here's what I want you to see. That unlike the weddings of this world, both royal and common, it is not the bride who takes the center stage here, but the groom. It is the king and not the queen who is the main attraction. He is the prized possession of his beloved. He is the one upon whom all eyes are riveted. The Lord Jesus then is held forth before your eyes this morning. And the Spirit's call to you, the church today, in this marriage melody is as follows. Forsake all and worship the God-man, your king and husband. Forsake all 
and worship the God-man, your king and husband. We'll discover this under two headings. First, his royal highness in verses 1 to 8. And then second, her royal highness in verses 9 to 17. First, his royal highness in uh, verses 1 to 8. Uh, the inspired writer is, is overwhelmed at the opening scene of the wedding. You see, as he gazes upon his royal highness, whom the spirit is showcasing before him, his heart is so overflowing, so abounding with love and joy, that he cannot but write the things that he sees. The reality is, of course, that it was the spirit himself who compelled the poet to put pen to paper. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, says the apostle Peter, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets of old were borne along by the Spirit of Christ to speak the word of Christ, which bears witness to the person of Christ. And it's in this vein that the psalmist begins his work. Notice that he writes first of the grace of his royal highness in verse 2, second of the glory of his royal highness in verses 3 to 5, and then third of the government of his royal highness in verses 6 to 8. First, the grace of his royal highness. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Here is Jesus, the man, in his surpassing beauty. Not that this beauty was of an outward form, like Saul, the son of Kish, who, who towered above his peers in both stature and appearance, but rather that it was the secret man of the heart, the adorning of his person with the graces of the spirit, the attractiveness of a sanctified character. The prophet writes that there is no form of comeliness that we should desire him. But the poet responds, yet there is a, a frame of character that we should delight in him. The lips of Christ glisten with the balm of grace. From the mouth of Solomon came the wise proverbs, but here is a wiser than Solomon. It was said of Samuel that not one of his words fell to the ground, but the word of Christ drops down like dew from heaven. Out of his holy heart and through his pure and undefiled lips streamed forth rivers of living doctrine. He never once sinned by the slip of the tongue. He was, in the words of the Apostle James, the perfect man who, having tamed his tongue, was able to bridle the whole body. Consider the fact that even the enemies of Jesus were disarmed by his way with words. On one occasion when the Sanhedrin sent out a squadron of the temple police to bring our Lord back in cuffs, having returned to their senders and having heard a series of sermons unlike anything they'd ever heard before at the synagogue, they responded to their mission's uh, problem, to the fact that they hadn't fulfilled their mission with these words. Never a man spoke like that man. They were quite literally disarmed by his way with words. You see, he wasn't the walking, talking dictionary of rabbinical speculations that so many of his 
scribes, contemporary scribes were. Isn't it tedious when the preacher in the pulpit starts quoting this scholar and that scholar, uh, scholar this author and that author, this writer and, and that writer, you know, uh, Chrysostom says this, uh, Owen says that, but Calvin says this, and the, the reality is that most sermons that go on that way are rather boring, aren't they? Well, you'll be glad to know that not one of our Lord Jesus' sermons were ever boring. Why? Because he didn't get his inspiration or his authority from men. He got it from his Father in heaven. For this reason, says the psalmist, his royal highness received God's eternal blessing because his speech was full of grace. First, his grace. And then second, notice, his glory. Verses 2 to 5. The same one whose speech is ever gracious also carries the sword in his sheath. The carpenter's son is also the conquering son. The king of grace is also the king of glory. He is the church's champion who rides forth valiantly in battle. He wages his warfare through the preaching of the word. Out of his mouth, writes John in the apocalypse, proceeds a sharp double-edged sword. Now, of course, when Jesus actually walked on earth, it's easy enough to uh, conceive how this happened, isn't it? After all, he was in the flesh, preaching to his contemporaries. But how is it that Christ wages his warfare in this present age, seeing that he is no longer with us in bodily form? Well, it's important for for you to understand that for as long as our Lord is absent in the flesh, his ministers are his mouthpiece. The means by which the Messiah wages his warfare, causes his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet, is nothing other than gospel ministry, the preaching of the word. Let me put it this way. The warrior is Jesus, the mouthpiece is the minister, and the sword is the word. Or the archer is Christ, the bow is the preacher, and the arrow is is the gospel. And here's what I want you to understand in all of that. That as the kingdom of God advances in this world through the church, as the Son of God gallops forth into hostile territory to do battle, and as the Spirit of God drives the sword into the hearts of sinners through the preaching, rebels are turned into subjects, enemies into friends, and sinners into saints. Such is the miraculous work of the Son as he does battle through the preaching of the word. And so I might ask you this morning, has the king of this psalm conquered your heart? Has he subdued you to himself? Or are you still living in rebellion, in disobedience to his laws and his decrees? How do you respond when Christ wields his sword through the ministry of his pastors, when the arrows fly from this pulpit and they prick your conscience, convicting you of sin, do you resist the Holy Spirit, refusing to submit to the sovereign, or do you fall down upon your knees in obedience to the Lord Jesus? Be careful, because the same sword is able both to slay as well as to save. If you saw this 
valiant warrior riding toward you in the ancient world with his armaments drawn, I, I guarantee you, I know I would, fall down upon my knees and, and beg for, for mercy and surrender. And so as Christ challenges you, as he does battle with you, as it were, through the preaching of the word, what you ought to do is fall down and say, save me, have mercy upon me, for you, Lord, are mightier than I. First is grace, second his glory, and then third I want you to notice his government. The valiant man of verses 1 to 5 is the very God of verses 6 to 8. The love song uh, hits a monumental shift. It switches from admiring Christ in his humanity to adoring him in his divinity. The psalmist points to this king who rides in such stately splendor on his stallion and he cries out with exuberant praise, forever and forever is, O God, your throne of might, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter that is right. The government of the God-man is eternal and the government of the God-man is upright. He hates wickedness. But he loves righteousness. And it is for this reason, it is therefore, that his God anoints him with the oil of gladness. Now, if you've been paying careful attention, you'll see that there was some kind of paradox there in what I just said. After all, we already said that this king is God. So how is it then that God is anointing God? (laughs) Well, the answer lies in the distinctions. You see, just as the Lord Jesus is both God and man, and so we ought to distinguish between his two natures, although they are united in the one person, even so is God both Father and Son, and so we distinguish between the persons, although they are united in the one nature. Now you have it all sussed out, you see. In other words, verse 7 is saying that God the Father anoints God the Son with the oil of gladness in his humanity and because of his perfect obedience uh, therein. You see, the Father is in view, the Son is in view, but where the Father and the Son are, there is the Spirit also. He is signified in the oil with which the Son is anointed. He is the Spirit of joy and of gladness, the promise of the Father to the Son, the one who shines the spotlight upon Christ and therefore exalts him above his companions. He is the Spirit of Jesus, the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ, the fragrance in verse 8 which is diffused from the king's garments in order to woo his bride to himself. Here is presented to us not only the Father and the Son, but the most holy and glorious Spirit. Well, to this point, uh, the psalmist has fixed our gaze on his royal highness in verses 1 to 8. Now he turns our attention to her royal highness in verses 9 to 17. I want you fellows to imagine that you've just married a stunning young lady. Now, for some of us, that's not difficult because we already have at some point or another. But if you'll stay with me for the sake of the illustration, it'll all make sense. The ceremony has just finished, and the two of you sit in the back of the limousine 
uh, on your way to be carted off to the hotel. The wedding itself went really well, just as you expected, and uh, you're now anticipating the next phase of life with your lover. You're riding along in the car, you're, you're dreaming about things to come, when suddenly she turns to you with a dead serious look in her face, and she tells you, I want to go home. We're on our way to uh, the honeymoon. We're, we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. What, what do you mean you want to go home? I want to go home. But, honey, we're, we're married now. Uh, we, we said the vows. You took my name. Look, the, the, the rings that we're wearing, they bear witness to our inseparable union. I want to go home. I want to uh, go back to my parents' house. I might have your name now, but... I don't want to live with you all the time. I want to go back to my old boyfriends. I might be wearing your ring, but I don't want to be faithful all the time. I'll come and see you now and then, I promise. But for the most part, to be honest, I just want to live my life as though you didn't exist. Could you imagine the treachery of such a thing? Could you imagine the scandal? What an awful way that would be for a wife to treat her newly wed husband. And yet, friends, is that not the way that you and I have so often treated our Lord Jesus Christ? How many times have you said to the Son of God in your innermost being, just, just let me go off and enjoy the world for a while, will you? I know I have your name now, but... I, I don't want to be with you all the time. Or let me go back to those old pleasurable sins that I used to indulge in. I know I've been united with you in holy baptism, but I don't want to be faithful all the time. Or then there's the worst one of all. I'll come and see you every now and then, I promise. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll, I'll even attend the odd prayer meeting, but... For the most part, Lord, would you just let me live my life as though you don't exist? Do you see how scandalously we treat our Lord and our husband, Jesus Christ? Oh, we've never uttered such diabolical words aloud, I'm sure, but do not our actions so often betray our hearts in this matter? How scandalously we treat the one who has condescended to become one spirit with us. These things, friends, ought never to be. Instead, the church's calling is to forsake her past, to leave her people, to give up her possessions, all for the sake of him who loves her and has washed her in his own precious blood. The spirit calls to you today in verses 10 and 11. And he says, listen and consider. Perk up your ears and pay attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Forget all your former ways and desires. And in so doing, you will beautify yourself for this glorious king. Are you a Christian? Well then, since he is your Lord and husband, worship him. That is the Spirit's call to you today. The illustrations 
in the former verses of the God-man's grace, of his glory and his government, now give way to the imperative in verse 11. The Spirit calls the church to respond to what she has seen by giving the Lord the worship due to his name, by chiming in with the hymn writer's chorus, fairest of all the earth beside, chiefest of all unto thy bride, fullness divine in thee I see, beautiful man of Calvary. To adore this glorious king. That's her royal highness's calling in verses 10 and 11. And then there's her royal highness's uh, court in verses 12 to 15. In her court you can find the princess receiving gifts from the wealthiest of nations, being clad in the most beautiful of dresses, and being accompanied by the fairest of virgins. And all of these adornments come as a result of her commitment to Christ. You see, when the bride forsakes all for love's sake, she gains all for heaven's sake. Her unrelenting devotion to her husband is a witness to the world. It woos sinners in to join in with her worship, and in so doing, she inherits the wealth of the nations. When the Messiah's beloved treasures her husband's commandments in her heart, when she preaches and adorns the gospel with the fullness of grace's virtues she clothes herself in garments of righteousness her robes are all interwoven with gold and when the queen upholds the pure doctrines of the gospel when she sounds out the good news of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone when she upholds what is right and true many saints are added to the number of the church she is accompanied by the fairest of virgins. You see, Princess Diana's dress may have been embroidered with 10,000 pearls, but how much better is it, brothers and sisters, when the church's robes, when her garments are embroidered with 10,000 graces, when she adorns herself with good works and beautifies herself for her king? Her Royal Highness is calling in verses 10 to 11. Her court in 12 to 15. And then finally I want you to notice her crown in verses 16 to 17. Here the wedding poem reaches its climax in the concluding benediction which is pronounced upon the newly wed couple. And this benediction comes in the form of two pronouncements. One that the marriage would be blessed with many royal children in verse 16. And then two, that the king's name would be remembered in all generations through his queen. There in verse 17. The first blessing ought to remind you of the covenant promises that God has made to his church from the very beginning. All the way back to Genesis 13 and verse 16. The Lord said to Abraham, I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, then would your seed be numbered. How many of you children have ever been to the beach, played in the sand? Now, here's a challenge for you. When you're at the beach and you're playing with the sand, next time you do that, I want you to try and count as many grains of sand as you can and see how long that occupies you. You see, if you were to count all of the grains of sand and and even more than that, all of the specks of dust in this world, it would be in the trillions, quadrillions. Who knows what the number would be? More than anyone could count. And this promise 
This promise, saints, is fulfilled in that the bride of Christ bears an innumerable brood of regenerate children to her husband. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, she gives birth to a chosen race, a royal nation, a a holy nation, which will inevitably grow to such heights of glory that one day soon it will fill the entire earth. Here is a marriage that God has promised to bless with many, many children. And then the second blessing in this benediction reminds us of another aspect of this covenant, which we commonly call the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, the Lord says to King David, I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And once again, in verse 17, we find this covenant promise being fulfilled in the church. How so, you say? Well, in that Christ, her husband, preserves, protects, and prospers her throughout all generations because it is in his name, or in his church, rather, that he has placed his name. Both of these covenant promises fulfilled in the church. So, Roebuck Presbyterian Church, bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you doing today to make yourself beautiful for the groom's arrival if you're thinking to yourself well I don't know how I'm supposed to do that well let me just summarize what I've been saying very simply fix your gaze upon Jesus you see it's when you gaze into his beautiful face that your own life begins to be transformed See for yourselves how altogether lovely he is. The Rose of Sharon, the fairest among ten thousands. Think of all those titles that the scriptures give to our Lord Jesus Christ. Admire the grace of his humanity. Adore the glory of his divinity, the government of his power. Fall down upon your knees, forsaking all that this passing world has to offer you. In adoration of his royal highness. Spirit calls you today. Forsake all and worship the God man. Your king and your husband. Let's pray. Father we bless you. We give thanks uh, for the holy scriptures. This is a living word. And we have read uh, this morning. Of this holy marital ceremony we do not know who the happy couple were we do not need to know because we understand and confess lord that this is but a type and a shadow of christ and his church help us then to make ourselves as beautiful as we can in preparation for our lord's arrival we pray O god that even this day we would spend our time wisely, that we would not go about our own activities, that we would not pursue recreation or other things, but that we would set this day aside, this Lord's day, for wholehearted worship and adoration of you. We pray, O Lord, that you would placard Christ before us, 
Stir up our hearts that we might love him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's respond to the things that we've heard by singing together hymn number 32. Hymn number 32, stanzas 1 and 3 in the red hymnal, Great is Your Faithfulness. Let's stand together as we sing.